Whew. So we may have set the single longest Bible reading record for this church for some time, but I promise you it was completely necessary um, because uh, we're doing Acts 7 today and it's kind of one unit. Um, so welcome everybody. Um, I'm Brendan. I'm happy to be delivering the message today. Today we're concluding our, uh, our three-week mini-series on the book of Acts. Um, two weeks ago, um, we had Tom speaking about the foundation of the early church as it came up in Acts 2, um, how the action of the Holy Spirit kicked off this world-shaking movement that changed everything. And just as it was foretold in prophecy and foreshadowed in the Jewish feast they'd been celebrating for thousands of years. And last week, Daniel talked about the growth of the early church, how it exploded out from this tiny group of poor fishermen and uneducated men and then spread to all the ends of the earth through billions of people over thousands of years. And uh, tonight we're talking about Acts chapter 7. We're uh, talking about sacrifice and persecution. This is necessarily what comes. The church starts, the church grows, and then it gets persecuted, and the people in the church have to start making sacrifices. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start. Father God, we thank you for giving us your word. Please open our hearts to it and it to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So the problem with Acts chapter seven is that it's, number one, it's humongous, um, as you just heard, and number two, it's one whole unit. Um, so we can't really cut it up into smaller studies and different weeks without doing damage to the message of it because it's one speech. And it's, it's like moving house, and sometimes you get a piece of equipment, like a, a bookshelf or something you got from Ikea, and it folds apart nicely with a little Allen key, and then you can just take it in a pile, maybe two trips in your car with the planks poking over the passenger seat as you go, and assemble it in the new house, and everything's fine. Some passages can be broken down like that without any damage. Acts chapter 7 is not like that. Acts chapter 7 is the, the antique, um, what do you call that thing that's like the chest of drawers with a mirror on it as well? dresser, vanity kind of thing. One of those, like one of those that was inherited from a great aunt, so it was, wasn't built ever to be taken down. It's one huge thing, and to move it, you can't take it to pieces, you just have to deal with it. Um, lift up the terrible thing and drag it down two flights of stairs very carefully. In this case, it's not a terrible thing, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and so we're going to go into it and talk about this magnificent speech. So. It's a passage about what we are willing to give up and what we are not willing to give up for the truth when we are confronted by it. And it reminds me of another story that I, uh, I first encountered in my childhood a long time ago. And see, the best stories are the ones that stick with us. They're giving us some peculiar insight into the human experience that we have. And they linger with people for well, for the humans, tens, hundreds, thousands of years passed down from one person to another because they connect with something real. And the same is true in fiction, in true stories, in parables, in fairy tales, and in legends. And in one such legend, we may remember the following scene. An ordinary man, not yet the hero he will become, sits before a wise man who is giving him a cryptic oracle. The world has been pulled over your eyes to blind you to the truth, that you were a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison you cannot smell or taste or touch. 
a prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can see or be told what this prison is. You must see it for yourself. And this is your only chance, and after it there will be no other. I am, of course, talking about The Matrix. The finest film of 1999, the movie Keanu Reeves was born for and which he will be remembered for long after he is gone. If you've never seen it, the story is easily summarized. The world of the Matrix is a false reality offered to us to distract us from life-changing truths, that the world behind it is occupied by the enemies of mankind, that we are vulnerable to those enemies because we are weak and fearful, and we cling to familiar lies instead of a strange but true revelation. It was not written to have Christian significance. It's mostly told to entice people who feel as though their lives are conspicuously ordinary or dull or boring or meaningless. And offering them a world behind the ordinary, dull, boring, boring, meaningless one, which is full of adventure and meaning. But the believer in Christ is living this story. Someone in their life, whether family or friend or a well-meaning stranger with a tract on the street, someone has told them that the world they are living in hides behind it another world that is more significant than the one they see. That the things that define this life, the achievements, the ambitions, the daily grind, the desperate rush to get everything crammed into one short life, these things distract us, deflecting our attention away from the fundamental truth of our existence, that we are sinners against God and we need a savior. Indeed, these achievements, that daily grind and the desperate rush, don't just distract, they are often deliberately set before us to distract us by an enemy who hates us and the God in whose image we are made. And learning this truth changes us. It changes everything. It's so deep and so profound and so powerful that to really take it to heart is to let it change everything about who you are about what you do, what you dream, what you long for, what you fear, and how you love. It's a truth that has compelled billions of people across thousands of years to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's this truth that began this legacy of people who received the truth of the gospel as worth living for and worth dying for. And it's this truth that brought Stephen the first heir of that deadly legacy after Christ himself, before the same council that condemned Christ. And it is the rejection of that truth that propelled a crowd to drag him outside the city and beat him to death with rocks. So Stephen's first appearances in the book of Acts really starts at uh, chapter six, verse five. But I felt we read enough in chapter seven. But to summarize that, in Acts 6, he's selected by the apostles who recognize this miraculous spiritual power and movement that's happening in his life after he's received Jesus. And he preaches and he accomplishes miracles until he is captured, he's arrested, detained, dragged before that same council that's, that crucified Jesus. And the people there set false witnesses against him. He is, they are desperate to see him punished. They lie in that temple before the priests saying that in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Two charges, that he wants the temple destroyed and that he wants to change the law of Moses. 
And chapter seven is Stephen's defense against this, or at least it's his reply against this. The high priests ask, are these things true? It's a simple yes or no question. He draws in a deep breath, and then spends 1,200 words ignoring the question. So the people kill him. He gives up his only chance to plead innocence for the opportunity to give this speech. The worst thing that that crowd can conceive to do to him is kill him. But Stephen is remarkably at peace with that process. As he follows this legacy of Christ, condemned by a mob after a sham trial, he strives to follow Jesus' example in how he meets his death. He witnesses the heavens open up before him and he cries out to Jesus as Jesus had to the Father to receive his spirit. And then again as Jesus had on the cross that his Father should not hold this sin against his killers. Why? Why not kick and scream and cry innocence? Because he'd heard the gospel and had been changed by it. And for him, everything had changed. Survival was no longer at the top of his list of priorities. The way he understood the world and his place in it changes so dramatically that avoiding violent execution drops way down his list of priorities. At the top is his desire to use that moment in the trial to testify about the work of God in history, how he had promised and delivered the savior of mankind. And it was more important to proclaim the gospel there in that moment in front of people he must have known were likely to ignore it. They did before when Jesus was there. Indeed, the whole point of that divine speech is how talented they are at ignoring divine speeches. It was more important to proclaim the gospel there and then than to grasp at a chance to survive for another day. So what does he have to say that is so worth dying for? And that the author of Acts is willing to devote the single largest speech in the book of Acts to? Well, he attacks them with his words. His speech is aimed to hit them squarely in their Jewish pride because his speech, his impromptu history lesson, is targeted to undermine the three cultural pillars that the Jews of that time saw as essential to their identity as Jews. Essential to their identity as the people of God. Those three pillars were the promised land given to Abraham's descendants by God, the law of God or the law given through Moses, those commandments and statutes given to Moses. And the temple on Jerusalem established by King Solomon, the law, the land, the temple, Stephen's speech attacks all of them. He begins in verse two, giving an abridged story of the calling of the great patriarch Abraham. Stephen accuses, or takes his accusers first of the stories of their ancestors, stories they should have known and have heard from childhood about Father Abraham and how God chose him, calling him out of a nation of pagans, people who didn't know the real God, directing him to the promised land. And the sting of Stephen's words comes here in verse five. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So despite being the God of Israel, Stephen says, God was working out his plans before there was an Israel. Not only did Abraham not inherit the promised land himself, the ones who would inherit it weren't born when the promise was given. There's a terrible cart before the horse kind of logic that the Jews had fallen into at that time. 
as if having the promised land was part of what made them God's people. This is a lot like a, a teenager who's received his P-plates and takes them as proof that he is a good driver. They are not. They are proof that someone has trusted him enough to allow him to drive. Perhaps even access to the family car from time to time. But he's still only a couple of tickets away from losing that privilege altogether until he proves himself trustworthy of that again. Israel's promised land is provisional on their behavior. It doesn't give them license as God's people. But they had come to see it as proof of their righteousness. But righteousness is not a feature bestowed by geography. And he emphasizes this fault as he goes on in verse nine. And he tells a brief story of Joseph. Betrayed by his brothers and unrecognized by them when they came and met him for the first time in Egypt. A savior God had appointed for his people who they failed to acknowledge and they betrayed. And they are saved in Joseph's story by Egypt. Not only does God's covenant not revolve around the promised land, he displays it further by delivering his people out of that promised land into Egypt, according to his plan. God's covenant and his plan begins in Mesopotamia. It travels through Canaan. It continues to operate in Egypt without breaking down or weakening. He uses Joseph to save his people from starvation, not by blessing the promised land with abundant harvest, but by sending his people out of that promised land to where he had sent his blessing into Egypt. He is the international God. He will not be constrained. And he operates even through the dark and powerful events that follow in Egypt, in verse 17. Stephen talking to the council of men who prided themselves on obeying and keeping and living those laws of Moses. And he brings them to that very story. The torch of God's people being passed from Abraham to Joseph and now to Moses. The legendary lawgiver, the Moses who was instructed with the wisdom of the Egyptians. God built up this prophet to lead his people again with wisdom from another place, from Egypt. And this Moses, who would never even make it into the promised land, was God's instrument to deliver his people. Now verse 25 is the next truly sharp one where Stephen says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Those ancient Hebrews did not recognize the savior that God had put in their midst. And there are no prizes for spotting the comparison that Stephen is drawing here. The children of Abraham did not recognize Joseph when they saw him. They didn't recognize Moses when he made his first efforts to help them. And they didn't recognize Jesus when he came and he was condemned by the very court that Stephen is talking to when he says this. He gives that tale of Moses and his abortive attempt to help his kinsmen, his retreat into the wilderness and his encounter with God at the burning bush. And where was this holy ground where he was required to remove his footwear? In the wilderness, not even in the boundaries of the land that was promised to the sons of Abraham. God raised up a Hebrew savior first in Egypt, then in Midian to encounter powerfully at Sinai, all these places outside of Israel. And to make him into a prophet who would know God on this earth like no one else would. With an intimacy never rivaled in scripture outside of Jesus himself knowing the Father. And Stephen is driven almost to exasperation as he proceeds in verse 35. This Moses, who they rejected saying, 
Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel that appeared to him out of the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. The holiest, most godly human ever to strap on a sandal. And the people didn't take his words to heart, not even in his day. And they don't understand them in Stephen's day. You see, now having undermined that Jewish fascination with the promised land, he begins to undermine their fascination with the law of Moses. Not to ruin that law, as they had falsely accused him of wanting to do, but instead to tell them that their fathers had failed constantly to observe that law. That they had turned immediately to idols, even in the face of miracles and the delivering experience of the power of God. And the implication is clear, just as the Hebrew fathers failed to accept the law as it was given by Moses, so too the Jews were failing then to accept it because Moses foretold the coming of Christ when he said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And the law, the writings of Moses, should have enabled them to come closer to the heart of God and to recognize that savior. That law their fathers betrayed and they betrayed. And just as God expelled his people into exile in Babylon then, Stephen implies that there's nothing stopping him from doing it again now. So Stephen takes the land away from them. He takes the law away from them, and then in verse 44, he takes the temple away from them. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was till the days of David, who found favor in the sight of of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? We must not miss the accusation in these words. Moses' generation made the golden calf by their hands. Solomon's generation made the temple by their hands. But God does not dwell in houses made by hands. But in all of heaven and earth, because did not my hand make all these things? The people, the Jewish leaders, are accusing Stephen of rejecting the law and the temple. And Stephen is accusing the people of ignoring the law and treating the temple like an idol. He implies even that, like Aaron, that first priest did, by allowing them to make the golden calf, these priests are enabling the people to blaspheme God. That the blessing of God, the favor of God, did not depend on possession of the land, or possession of the law, or possession of the temple. But only in the covenant of God's faithfulness 
fulfilled in Jesus Christ, pouring out his Holy Spirit upon those that he has chosen. And he finishes his testimony with this fearless indictment. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Betrayers, murderers, persecutors of the Messiah and of those prophets who came before him. He calls them uncircumcised of heart and ears, circumcision being that sign of God's covenant to Abraham. And he adds insult to that accusation. They've missed the point of the land. They've missed the point of the law. They missed the point of the temple. And now they are missing the point of God's covenant and the Messiah it had always promised. And after this, the crowd is so enraged they can't even wait to go through the process that they went through with Jesus. There's no shuffle back and forth between Jewish and Roman authorities trying to get a formal execution going. They just drag him outside the city and straight up murder him with stones. And there begins that lethal history of friction between those who accept the Jewish Messiah and those who don't. So now... Acts 7 has taken us on a tour of biblical history from Genesis through to 1 Kings. We learn here that the Jews had a false and failed understanding of what it meant to be God's people and that neither possessing the land or the law or the temple gave them the right to inherit the covenant. But what does this mean for you and me? We never had a temple or a promised land to take for granted. I mean, we have the law of Moses, but we have it with the Gospels and the Epistles, all of them showing us that the law only existed to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Stephen was a Jew speaking to Jews about Jewish problems in their failure to accept the king of the Jews. So what's here for us Gentiles? Everything. Stephen's speech and death changes everything, or rather, Jesus changes everything, and Stephen was the first to die to prove it. You see, the specifics of Stephen's speech, the land, the law, the temple, are interesting and useful for Christians to know. But since we're not first century Jews, we have to appreciate that this isn't a speech targeted at us. But the principle of his complaint, in this huge testimony, that these people were not willing to give up their religiosity, is their main point, that they were not willing to give up their comfortable system they had grown into. They were clinging to it even in the truth that was staring them in the face that God had come to earth and they had slain him and he had been risen again. They were absorbed into their world at the expense of really knowing the gospel. And if we don't live our lives in the same way that Stephen lived his, then we don't really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. If his story is not our story, we do not really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, naturally, we have to hope that our version lasts about 60 years longer and doesn't end quite so roughly. But Stephen was one of the first Christians. He learned the truth of the gospel, that he was a sinner in need of a savior, and that that savior had come, died to take away his sins against God, and rose again to promise him new life and resurrection. Only if he would repent and believe. And Stephen repented and he believed. And it changed everything. Now he could have lived his life like so many other Jews of his day, shutting his ears to the message of the gospel 
and doing the Jewish things that they were doing. Then one day he would die. And the land would be gone, the law would be gone, the temple gone. And he would have to stand before God and give account for why he had heard the gospel, the truth that should have changed everything, and why nothing about him had changed. And it's a terrible, sad truth that every Sunday, millions upon millions of people around the world will file into churches, they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and then go home as if they hadn't heard anything. They've added go to church to a list of priorities way down the bottom somewhere beneath start my own business or buy my own house or impress my parents. Or heck, while we're tipping over sacred cows, live an exciting life or follow all my dreams or fall in love and get married. Any and all of these things are good, wonderful things. But following Jesus means putting them all beneath Jesus. It means that our lives must be defined by our devotion to the gospel and anything that gets in the way of that between us and the Lord is a sacred cow that we need to tip. I remember being a high school student in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, And if you were a computer guy like me, it was a great day to be alive because, aha, mateys, it was the dawn of a new age of piracy. It was the first time that illegal file sharing really exploded onto the internet. Napster. There was no YouTube, no BitTorrent, no iTunes, no Spotify or Pandora. Before this, if you wanted, you actually had to go to a store that only sold music. How quaint is that? And if you heard a song on the radio and you wanted to hear more from that band, you had to buy the album and hope that you liked it. And usually you didn't. And then you would have wasted your money. But me and everyone I knew at that time, well, we got into the ground floor. And we just had piles of these identical gold-colored TDK CDs lying around our rooms, just burned copies of illegal music everywhere. Fantastic. No, actually terrible. But (laughs) because for the first time, I could have something that I couldn't afford. I could take it and no one could stop me, and as far as I could tell, no one was getting hurt. So I took it. Same thing with computer games. $50 for StarCraft? That's shelf price. Shelf price is for suckers. Shelf price was for people who didn't have a best Chinese friend named Jesse Yu, who owned a metal briefcase that could go through airport scanners without anyone seeing the pirated CDs inside from a Shanghai market stall. Har har. Pirate booty. Better than all the gold doubloons in the world. Now that I think about it, I was part of an international cartel then. <laughs> Kids would come up to me and ask, hey, can you get me a pirated copy of Half-Life? Maybe I can. Maybe I know a guy. What's in it for me? <laughs> but God convicted me over that. And it sounds trivial, but it was a big deal for me to give up. But it's so cheap, doesn't matter. But I was going to buy it anyway, doesn't matter. But they're not going to miss my money, they're rich, doesn't matter. It's taking without permission what belongs to someone else. 
and Jesus did not die so that I could squirm around and justify doing what I knew was wrong. So I gave it up. Now that's a weak example. There was no suffering really for what I gave up beyond getting used to not having certain luxuries for free anymore. But what is true on that small scale is also true on larger ones. And we must constantly ask ourselves, are we being like Stephen, clinging first to Jesus and what he wants for us? Or are we like the council, holding on to what is familiar or profitable or easy or comfortable? And when God says, be holy because I am holy, he means it. And it should mean something to us. It means that we have to think about his holiness first, maybe at the cost of everything else. It means that every decision we make has to start with the question, what would Lord Jesus want me to do? For every significant decision, obviously it doesn't matter what we have for breakfast. As far as I can tell from scripture, Jesus has no strong opinion on cereal versus toast. But every meaningful decision, yes, has to come after our commitment to the gospel. It means that if I can't afford the house I want unless I stop giving to my church, I buy a smaller house with a smaller mortgage. It means that if my job gets so demanding that I don't get time to go to church or gather with my fellow believers, I have to look for a new job. It means that if my parents are unimpressed with how much of my life is taken up by ministry, I stick with it and I trust them to love me anyway. It means that if I'm interested in dating a girl, the first question that I have to ask is, do they call Jesus their Lord and Savior? And if the answer is no, I gotta move on. And it means that if someday God leads me to a place where people hate him, and the choice is to deny that he is Lord or die, then I gotta die. So what are you living for? What is central to your life right now? Is it coming between you and the real wonderful truth that Jesus paid the price for your sins, promising you everlasting life? Or are you living for that gospel? Living to see friends and loved ones and strangers all come to know it too? The gospel changes everything. And you've only got one life to let it change you. There won't be another chance. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us the beautiful truth of your word. Please help us to accept it, all of it. Give us the strength to do the difficult things that come with making you Lord. We rely on your Holy Spirit to build us up into stronger people than we were when you met us. And we just ask that you change our lives when we commit ourselves to you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.